Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Racial issues and perspectives deserve our attention and care year-round, but the fact that February is Black History Month provided some extra impetus for me to read Not All Poor People Are Black and other things that we need to think more about. A set of far-reaching essays by Janet Cheatham Bell. Janet was raised in southern Indiana when segregation, though not the law there, was the strictly enforced practice. Having lived through dramatic societal and life changes, and having propelled herself through powerful personal and professional transformation, including an interracial marriage, parenting a son, publishing her own books, and finding an authentic spiritual landscape for herself, Janet Cheatham Bell's thoughts ring with authenticity and integrity and provide great power for a better way forward for all. She joins us by phone from Bloomington, Indiana. Janet, I'm absolutely delighted to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. Quite a book, quite a collection of essays. I really like the fact, by the way, that this is your writings in this case. I know that you started out in publishing and in producing books by collections of quotations. Yes. Specifically of black Americans that you were preparing quotations of. Would you care to wow us with any of the unknown or lesser known quotations that you've been able to share with the world? Well, the first thing I'd like to do is to point out that it wasn't just black Americans that I was collecting. It was people of African descent from all around the world. And I want to check something about that right away. I believe that we're all of African descent. Well, you're absolutely correct in that. (laughs) Some of you just got closer ancestry. Yes. So I was collecting the people who are of closer ancestry to African descent, the original people. That's what the Nation of Islam always called black people, the original people. Okay. Well, would you care to share a few of those quotations? Well, I have one here by a woman that I'm sure you've never heard of, but I got this quotation out of a collection of folk sayings, and what she says is, when you don't know when you have been spit on, it does not matter too much what else you think you know. Huh. Wow. And her name is Ruth Shays. And where is she from? When is she from? She was from the South, and she was Texas, I believe. And this quotation came from a book of folk wisdom. A guy went around and just 
talking to ordinary people and finding out what they had to say. Any other quotes you want to toss out? Let me give you one from Martin Delaney. Martin Delaney is an important figure in the history of African Americans. He was the first who tried to encourage people of African descent to return to Africa. Oh, okay. He said, a child born under oppression has all the elements of servility in its constitution. You know, I'd really love, I don't want to do it right now, but I'd really love to hear some of your perspectives on Liberia and that whole process. I don't know if you knew this, Janet, but I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Togo in West Africa. I never made it to Liberia, but with the people from Ghana who were friends and from Nigeria and Togo, of course, where I lived and so on, I got different perspectives from the indigenous African as opposed to the, I don't know, returning expatriates or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Who am I? Am I an African-American in Africa? or? Well, you know, they did call themselves Americo-Liberians. Really? Yes, they did. And what is even more disturbing is that they also treated the native Liberians the same way they were treated by whites in America. Right, yeah, and pass the abuse on. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, you start this book off with quite a splash. I think it's maybe the second essay that you share. The first one is just, I think, one page long. The next essay really hit me, and really the, the following couple. You share so much so candidly about your personal life, including that first essay about abortion and your personal experience and your thoughts about it and what you got from your mother about these kind of things. I don't want to misattribute anything that you say. So can you share a bit of that story, which I really found so honest and powerful? Well, you know, I wrote that story. First of all, I spent most of my life after I had the abortion being terribly private about it because I was ashamed because at the time that I had it, it was a crime. So not many people even knew about it. But a couple of years ago, I guess, when all of these new laws were being introduced about how to not only keep women from having abortions, but to keep them from even having access to contraception. And I thought, my God, what is going on? I mean, I was so appalled by it. I couldn't understand it. And a couple of friends of mine who were women much younger than I am who had had legal abortions, wrote about them just to show what this means and how important it is because all of this concern about the life of someone who hasn't yet breathed life and no concern whatsoever about the woman who has to carry that life. So they wrote about their abortions, and I decided at that point that I would write about mine. And it was very therapeutic for me as well because it helped me to let go of the shame because in writing about it, I understood why it was so necessary for me to do that at that point in my life. I let the shame go. I stopped judging myself. And when I was putting this collection of essays together, I decided to include that one in the collection. And you started up front with it, which I think shows considerable bravery. I mean, there are a lot of people who will tend to judge you. I mean, you made a mistake at one point now or in the past, and for some people it's unforgivable. Uh, 
One thing I found interesting, I did an interview a number of years ago with a woman, she's like me, she's a Quaker, and she is part of this effort at what's called consistent life. Yes, we're anti-war, anti-capital punishment. We're vegetarians with such great reverence for life. Of course, we'd be concerned about abortions. That doesn't necessarily mean we want to make laws about it or anything like that. But yes, we're sensitive to life at all levels. She told me that she has been to so-called pro-life conventions. And one of the things that happens is the women who have had abortions, who are pro-life now or maybe were at the time, they get together and they tell their stories to one another which is something I had never imagined would happen on the other side. So <laughs> yes. There is such power in telling your story and being honest and admitting who you are and what's made you who you are and what informs your understanding of the future. So where did you find the courage to do that kind of thing? Why is Janet Cheatham Bell able to do that while so many people keep it in the closet? I think my courage comes from my dad. I've been in search for courage my entire life, I believe. I think I am naturally a straightforward person, like my father was, and he was my role model in that regard. My father was born into a family that worked as sharecroppers, but something in him told him that there was more for him to do, so he left that life. He had only completed the fourth grade, and yet he became a respected leader in his community in Indianapolis. And he always said the only work he could do was work that used his muscles and his back, and he would never allow himself to be abused because he was looking for a job when he found that one and he could look for another one. So he had a kind of courage that was unusual for a black man who was born at the turn of the 20th century. So I guess that's what encouraged me to always feel that I deserved whatever made my life happy, regardless of what other people thought I should be doing. Well, I'm glad you have the bravery to talk about that. Your perspective on abortion, uh, clearly it's important to tell our stories, our experiences. Would you care to outline, so I don't misrepresent in any way, what your perspective is about abortion and about particularly the fight about abortion, which still continues to rage in this country? I absolutely believe that every woman has to make her own decision about her own body in every regard, not just abortion, but what she eats, how she dresses, all of that is the individual woman's choice. And of course, whatever choice you make, you accept the consequences that come with that choice. I cannot fathom how people who believe the government is too much in our lives think that it's okay for them not only to get into a woman's life, but inside her body. I find that so insulting and so abusive and so controlling that it just appalls me. I can't tell you how appalled I am by the whole notion of somebody else dictating what I do with my own body. It's none of their business. And as I've heard so many people say, <laughs> and I hope I don't insult you by repeating this, is that if men 
could have children, abortion would be a sacrament. I think you're right. I think you're right. There's <laughs> there's a lot of that. Actually, I was trying to think of what the parallel might be. What if the government mandated that a man had to have a prostate exam every six months? It, exactly. It's, it's not an option. Someone has to probe your private parts every six months. Let's see how much you like that. Or mandated that you must have a condom attached to your penis or something. You know, just some other thing that would in, so invade your private parts. How would we feel about that legislation? Exactly. It would never come up. Just like all of the brouhaha about Viagra being available for men and how, what a wonderful thing that is. And yet they don't want women to have contraception. And here's the short-sighted thing about this whole contraception thing, and I think I'd probably say this in my essay, is that don't they know that the people who they would like to have reproduce, the upper middle class people who have the wherewithal to get an abortion or contraception or whatever they want, they are the ones who will not be increasing the population. The population will be increased by all those poor people that they hate. Yeah, the right hand and left hand don't seem to understand what they're doing. But in any case, I really appreciated the sharings that you had in that essay, including the reflections from your mother's point of view. Uh, from a more delicate age when someone was in the family way and so on. <laughs> Another thing I appreciated about that particular essay is you started out with a quote from Jessamine West, who, like me, is a Quaker. And I was wondering, you know, you got your start in books doing quotations. What drew you in that direction? Were you not ready to put your own story down yet, your own essays, your own thoughts? What was it about quotations that was particularly valuable for you to pass on? Well, I love words. And whenever I was reading anything, and I love reading biographies and autobiographies, if I saw a phrase that struck me, I would copy it and save it. And because I used to teach African-American literature, I was constantly reading books and teaching about books. So I had lots of stuff that I had copied and saved in a file, in my file cabinet. And so people would come to me when they were going to give a speech or one time I was asked to help put a program together for an NAACP dinner and they wanted to use a quotation by a black person on every page of the program. And so they came to me and asked me to do that. So I just sort of was guided into collecting quotations, and someone suggested at one point that I publish them. And when I did, they sold like hotcakes. So, of course, when something is successful, when major publishers see you selling a lot of books, they become interested because, you know, all they do is imitate one another. So I had publishers coming to me after Warner picked up my quotation collection. I had other publishers coming to me and commissioning me to do books of famous black quotations on women and love and birthdays and things like that. I just sort of fell into that, and I finally just had to say, stop, I'm not doing quotations <laughs> anymore. But I still use them as the opening of the chapters in my books and, as you can see, at the opening of every essay that I wrote.
We're doing this interview right now at the conclusion of Black History Month, February. I was wondering about your perspective. You have such thought-provoking essays in your book, Not All Poor People Are Black and Other Things We Need to Think More About. You include a number of perspectives that I think you could say are not the party line. What are your thoughts about the pros and cons of having a particular month designated Black History Month? Is that a good thing, a bad thing? What are the pros and cons? Well, let me just say up front that I dislike more and more with every passing moment of my life the division of people into races and ethnic groups and categories and that kind of thing. However, this is a society that I live in, so... In my spirit of accepting what is, I accept the fact that Black History Month is absolutely necessary. And the reason why it's necessary is because we still do not include a credible history of African Americans in our standard textbooks, nor the history of Hispanic Americans who now have their own month nor an accurate history of the people who were inhabiting this land when it was invaded by Europeans. So we still need Black History Month, if for no other reason than to alert people to the fact that there is a history of black people, that we have accomplished some things. And as you may have heard, in Arizona, they have abolished teaching the history of Hispanics in their schools. So these kinds of additional histories and celebration of the history of people who are not in power in this country are still essential. I wish that weren't the case, but it is. So yes, we do need to continue having Black History Month, and I'm particularly happy about the fact that since we now celebrate Martin Luther King's birthday, the Black History Month has really been extended by a couple of weeks. It sort of begins with King's birthday and goes on for the next six weeks. As you say, the history books, I mean, I think George Washington Carver is probably one of the few blacks I knew much about, maybe Frederick Douglass, by the time I finished high school. I mean, of course, Martin Luther King. I graduated high school in 1972. But in the history books, who did I find? almost no one. So I don't think that the situation, though, is a lot better now because, in part, Texas tends to control so much of what we see in our textbooks. I think a lot of people don't realize that. You talk a little bit about what you see, what you've experienced over your life. Let me just say that I remember that there was nothing about blacks in history when I was in school back in the 40s and 50s. And then I was shocked when my nephews were going to school to learn that there still was nothing. And then my son, who was younger than my nephews, he went to a private school and there was still nothing. But because it was a private school and I was paying money for him to go there, and it was just the one school, I didn't have to deal with a whole bureaucracy, I was able to get them to start teaching what they call multicultural studies but just to shake them out of their singular focus on people of European descent. And my son sometimes jokes about that when he's doing stand-up comedy. (laughs) He says, my mother came to school and said, are you teaching black history? And when they said no, she said, well, you are now. (laughs) (laughs) 
But I did start his school in that direction. I don't know if they're still doing it or not. That was a long time ago. So I see this pattern being repeated in every generation that black history is ignored. And not only, I just watched the PBS documentary on the history of Hispanic Americans in the United States and was astonished at how much I didn't know, because I did know something about Hispanic American history. But after watching that documentary, I realized how little I knew. So there's still a need for us to learn something about people other than those who were the conquerors. But you know the victor gets to write the history books. Absolutely. <laughs> so often the what they perceive of as the lesser parts get written out. We don't have to waste time with that, right? Exactly. You've had to deal with a couple different kinds of glass ceilings. And you have, <laughs> you have your essays, you know, you're talking about doing your work in book and publishing and working your way up that, and you keep bumping your head against the ceiling, part maybe because you're African-American, part because you're a woman, and who knows what other reason people found for not letting you rise to where I think your abilities would have taken you. You've heard the saying, I think, Janet, that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Is that why you're so strong? I absolutely think that has a lot to do with it. And also because I was willing to take risk and willing to find out about people. I was always curious, too. So the idea that white people were powerful and that we as black people, and I didn't discover the prejudice against women until I was much older because I always thought that when people were rejecting me, it was because of my color. I never thought that my gender had anything to do with it until I was older. But I was always curious, and as I observed white people and discovered that not all of them were smarter than me and discovered that they could be intimidated by me simply because I didn't shrink in their presence, I mean, those were all learning experiences for me. So that gave me the courage to step up and assert myself and not to accept certain things that they wanted me to accept. And, of course, that didn't do away with all of the obstacles that were put in my path, but it certainly shaped my character and encouraged me to be stronger, absolutely. I want to ask you a few more things right away, but first I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with Janet Cheatham-Bell today. Her website, JanetCheathamBell.com. If you don't know how to spell that, come via NordenSpiritRadio.org. This is Spirit in Action, which is Northern Spirit Radio production, on the web at NorthernSpiritRadio.org. And on that site, you'll find almost 10 years of our programs for free listening and download. You'll find links and more information about our guests. You'll find comments that others have posted, and we ask that you add your comments when you visit because we love two-way communication. You'll also find a place where you can support Northern Spirit Radio with donation. Please click support to make this work possible. You know that the corporations are not doing it, so we need your help. 
perhaps even more importantly, I ask that you support your local community radio stations. Community radio stations provide slice of music and of news that you get nowhere else on the public airwaves in the United States. So please, start first by supporting your local community radio station. Again, Janet Cheatham-Bell is here today. She's an author. Amongst other things, Janet, you're a mother and you're a daughter which makes a big difference in terms of what we do in this world. And your father, I think, was from Kentucky. You basically grew up in Indiana. So I think that makes you a northern black. Is that an accurate statement? Technically, it's accurate. However, Indiana, when I was growing up, was as segregated as any place in the South. The only difference was that we didn't have the signs that said whites only, but everybody knew exactly where blacks could go and where they couldn't go. And our schools were segregated by law. There were special schools in every section of town for black kids. The school that I attended in elementary school, the only people there who were not of African descent were two students who were Native Americans. I guess they were not black, but since they weren't white, they couldn't possibly go to school with the white children, so they sent them to the black school. Have you ever lived in what we might call the Deep South? I got some perspective on this that I thought was kind of interesting. I used to live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I was teaching at the university at one point. I had a student in one of the physics classes I was teaching come up to me, and he shared his experience. He's from, I think, Alabama originally, and he said that the racism that he experienced in Milwaukee was much worse than what he had experienced in Alabama because it was not owned, I guess you'd say, <laughs> that, in fact, the racism he experienced was people mistreating him and smiling or pretending, but clearly treating him like a leper. What was your experience? Have you traveled in the South? I have traveled in the South. As a matter of fact, my son's father is from Mobile, Alabama. So I've been to Alabama and other places. I have friends in Florida and, and South Carolina, and I've visited both places. Yes, there's an old folk saying among black people that really sort of capsulizes the different kinds of racism. In the South, they don't care how close you get as long as you don't get too high. And in the North, they don't care how high you get as long as you don't get too close. I had never heard that, but yeah, that makes sense. Huh. In the North, they don't have signs that say whites only or neighborhoods that they overtly say are for whites only, but they act all that out. They don't want you around them. They don't want you close to them. They want you over there. It doesn't matter to them if you are a college professor or some young boy who's in a gang. If you're not white, they don't want you too close. So what's your experience now? I mean, we're now in 2015. Things have changed. We have what I'm sure was unimaginable to you, certainly to me growing up. We have a president who qualifies as black, and that would not have been possible. I mean, the first time I had any inkling that it would be possible is when Jesse Jackson ran for president. 
I saw the tears of joy on his mm-hmm. supporters, and my heart just leapt. It's like, wow, this would be so transformational. What's your experience of living from segregation growing up to the day when we actually have a black president? I was shocked as well when I recognized, and I did recognize this long before he was elected, that it was possible that he would be elected president. It seemed like a sudden shift. I don't know if you could tell from reading my spiritual essays, but I believe that even though we people think that we're in charge of everything and that we run everything and that we have all the power to make things happen, I believe that there's certain points in the evolution of the world when the time has come for a certain thing to happen, and it happens, despite its complete unpredictability. I think that is the case with Barack Obama, because five years before he decided to run, I did not think that such a thing was possible. And I'm sure that I wasn't alone in that idea. Nor did I think five years before it happened that there would ever be anywhere in the United States of America where people of the same sex could get married. But that's now the case. Lots of places. For over half of the country, I think, now. Yeah. So I think, as Martin Luther King said, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. I believe that. But you also believe that sometimes it does a right turn and all of a sudden it heads to justice. (laughs) Well, I... But I even see the fact that Obama's election terrified a large number of people, especially those who see themselves as having been in charge of everything for a very long time. You know, nobody welcomes change. But his being elected president was like a sound of alarm to these people because they know the demographics of the United States are changing. And Obama's election sort of concretized their worst nightmare. And I think that's why they have been so vitriolic toward him and so determined to make him a failure as a president is because they see their hegemony crumbling to dust before their very eyes. So the only thing they can do is what people always do when they're afraid is lash out and try to destroy that which they fear. And that's what they're trying to do to him. But they cannot stop the evolution of the world. They cannot stop change from happening. They cannot stop the demographic change that is occurring in this country, no matter how much they scream and dig in their heels. They can't stop it. And what's so interesting and ironic about this whole thing is that the very people in power who are trying to stop this evolutionary change are the people who started it in the first place. Yeah. There's a quote I just saw last couple of days via Facebook, and you'll probably hate me because I can't properly attribute it, but (laughs) (laughs) it had a picture of the president. It said something to the effect of, if someone spits on you, abuses you, mistreats you, lies about you, and you still respond with love, maybe that should be the sign of a real Christian? Yes. (laughs) Can't we hope? (laughs) Yes, I find it particularly repugnant 
that these people who were so vitriolic and so mean, not only toward Obama, but toward women as well, called themselves Christians. And it seemed to me that other Christians would stand up and say, no, 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 absolutely not, you're not Christian. That's what they want the Muslims to do about ISIS. They want all the other Muslims to stand up and say, no, no, that's not really Islam. And when they don't stand up and and scream that out at the top of their lungs, then they are accused of endorsing ISIS. But somehow that doesn't work for Christians that way. Well, since you bring it up, let's talk a little bit about your spiritual journey. After all, Janet, this is spirit in action, and you're doing a lot of the action, and I'd like to know a bit more about the spirit behind it. You grew up Baptist. What I read was that you liked the teachings of love, the example that was taught there, but the services didn't grab you as you grew up a little bit. Tell us a bit about your experience of growing up as a Baptist in the USA. Well, uh, growing up as a Baptist felt very restrictive to me. There were so many things we were told we shouldn't do. But most of all, I was disturbed by the fact that God was so mean. <laughs> yes. I, 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 I couldn't grasp well, that. Well, God is love, and I'm going to make you burn for all eternity because you danced. <laughs> yeah, that just I kept that to myself because I didn't want to be uh, blasphemous or whatever my parents would have thought. But that just didn't feel right to me. As a consequence, for a while, I rejected any spiritual inclination whatsoever because I just thought it was all bullshit, really. But then, as I continued to read and also to think and also to observe things that happened in my own life, I mean, despite the fact, or maybe because of the fact, that I was born black, I had an excellent life. And I didn't know how excellent it was until I started meeting people outside of my narrow community that I grew up in in Indianapolis and learning what their lives were like. So I started reading, studying other religions, and just finally concluded that my beliefs and my spiritual experiences could not be contained by an institution. And the organization of an institution and the hierarchy of supposedly above me guiding me on how I was to live my life, I decided I could talk to God as easily as they could. Well, of course. Of course. <laughs> I, you and I both believe that. I, I, there are a few other people think you need an intermediary. You did write in one of your essays, again, the book is Not All Poor People Are Black and Other Things We Need to Think More About by Janet Cheatham Bell. One of the other things that you mentioned about that experience is while the services in general, you maybe didn't feel like you needed a half an hour sermon or whatever, the music really grabbed you, really speaks to you. And you did mention later on you found that there's other places where you could find the music that you didn't have to go to church to get. Yes, yes, yes. With your on and off, again, religious and spiritual seeking, it included going to this church and that church, and I interpreted it at least at one point for Kamau. I think you start going to church thinking that maybe it would be good yes. for him, but that you yes. found that he didn't like the services any more than you did. And so. <laughs> 
Eventually, you describe yourself as coming to a place where you found some commonality, something that I thought you could maybe respect in the spiritual search. You called it a spiritual center. Can you say more about what that was and what you valued there? Yes, what I valued there was the inclusiveness. They did not ever speak a negative word about any religion whatsoever. And they included wisdom from various religions in their services. Not only that, but even though they had ministers, they also welcomed discussion groups and other lay speakers to share their experiences instead of, you know, the minister being the one who stood up there and told you how to live your life and what to do. They allowed lay speakers to share their own spiritual experiences, which was very moving because ministers tend to speak or teach from a book, but when individuals, lay people, share their spiritual experiences, it's more moving because they're telling about what actually happened to them and what they went through and how they dealt with it. And it touches your heart more, and you can relate to it more easily than having somebody teaching you from a book that they have learned to teach from. You do comment, though, that even that place, even though you found a lot of commonality and I think real respect for what they have, that at a certain point it seemed like they were getting a little bit more hierarchical and ended up not settling there, I guess is what I'd say. So where did you go from there then, Janet? Well, what I do now is that I belong to two book groups. One of them specifically studies spiritual books. We read these books and we discuss them once a week. We may have a particular book that we read and discuss for a whole year, and we talk about how what we're reading applies or has worked in our daily lives. We question what's written there sometimes because we don't agree with it or one person in the group interprets it one way and one interprets it another. So I like these discussion groups because I like interaction. I don't like having someone stand above me. You know, just the fact that they always have them up high, standing behind a podium. Is just, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you and I are made of the same cloth, Janet. <laughs> But our book groups always sit in a circle where everybody can see everybody. Everybody is very attentive when someone is talking. That's where I get my spiritual reinforcement now, is in these groups. So you're searching where you went around. I assume you got a glimpse of other things. When you you talk about folks who are not limited to one book or something like that, I assume you might have checked out the Baha'is or the Unitarian Universalists, Quakers, Unity, the religious science folks. Did you have any contact with any of them? Yes, I did. I attended the UU Church a couple of times, but again, you know, I just don't think human beings can... I think building a hierarchical organization is just something they seem to like to do. And I just don't like that. Even though I've investigated, I find things, for example, from Unity, I have a subscription to their daily word, which I read all the time. But I really am not comfortable being a part of that organization because, again, they start making rules and things you must do, and there's something about me that just rebels against that. 
I think I've got the same thing. So I, <laughs> you probably don't need to spell it for me. I don't know if our <laughs> listeners will know what you're talking about. Again, folks, we're talking to Janet Cheatham-Bell, author of Not All Poor People Are Black and Other Things We Need to Think More About. Her website is JanetCheatham-Bell.com or come by org. I have the same experience, this idea of someone bossing me or telling me what I'm supposed to think and believe and to to set them above me. I think that ignores something absolutely vital. And, you know, I would say that in beliefs of unity or of the UU or whatever, they, they probably... I'm pretty sure they do believe in the equality of all people, but they set up this structure. So my question is about community, because I do have a prejudice in favor of community, that strong community is how we get things done. I don't think the civil rights movement would have worked if we hadn't had the strong presence of not only the black church in America, but many other religious groups pulling together as a cohesive body. And that always takes some kind of leadership and cohesion that we do that. So, you know, I've got this quandary within myself that I'm an individualist. You can't tell me what to think or believe. And I believe we need community. And you can't make me think otherwise, you know. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, community is very important. And I understand exactly what you mean about being an individual. But one thing I have discovered in my almost 80 years of life is that some people operate on a different... I read this book, Power Versus Force. And it talks about people operating on different levels of consciousness. Because I know people who really want somebody to tell them what to do. They don't want the responsibility of making their own decisions. And they especially don't want that in terms of their spiritual life. But there are other people like you and me who operate on a different level of consciousness who absolutely do not want anybody telling them what to do. I want to figure it out for myself. So those organizations that control people and tell them not only what to do, but what to eat and how to dress, those are important for those people who prefer not to make their own decisions. So I accept that. And like you say, we call on those organizations when we need people to come together to accomplish a goal. And one of the things that I think we need in this country right now are communities of people organizing to push back against some of these grotesque new laws that these state legislatures are pushing through. As with everything else, we need it all. Amongst the journeys that you took, you've been through a couple marriages, and one of them was with a Jewish white man. Talk about going out of the comfort level of people at that time, particularly interracial marriage was pretty limited, particularly a black woman with a white man. The reverse, I guess, was easier to accept for them. What did you learn from that marriage? Oh, I learned so much. First of all, I learned that all of the propaganda that I had been told while I was growing up about the invincibility and the omnipotence of white people was not true. And that's one of the reasons why I got into the relationship was out of curiosity, sheer curiosity. 
I mean, we had some other things in common that we shared, but I really was curious to see how these other people live. I mean, are their lives so different? Do they really have all that power that I've been told that they have? They can do anything? And I found out that they're human beings, just like black people. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and also the other thing that was equally important to me was that I grew up, my parents were not educated. I was the first person in my family to go to college. But I was always interested in learning, as were my parents. It's just that they didn't have the opportunity to explore it any further than the restrictions allowed in their day. So I really enjoyed pursuing an intellectual life. And there was something that I longed for, but I didn't really, couldn't articulate it and didn't know exactly what it was. And so marrying a professor and operating and meeting other people who were professors or graduate students, and we had an inclusive group. It wasn't all professors and PhDs, but it was just meeting people and doing things that I had never encountered before. So it was a very expansive period in my life, and I have absolutely no regrets about it whatsoever. It's amazing to think about the amount of internalized limitations. We talk about internalized racism and yes. that kind of thing. Uh, one of the comments that you made that I found very interesting, again, because I've lived in Africa for a couple of years. I was there last August. I was in the Congo. A large share of my experience with Africans or people with dark skin has been in Africa. I do have um, African-American friends as well, but the vast experience I had actually was in Africa. And there is a different experience. And you comment about that. And you talk about people with a history of being slapped. And if you've been beaten down enough, even through previous generations, it makes a difference. What have you observed about Africans who've come to this country, having been raised in Africa versus African-Americans? Oh, they have a, a much higher level of self-confidence. And also, the other aspect that I know I have to take into account is the fact that those Africans who leave their homeland and come here are the most ambitious Africans as well. Those people who don't have that kind of drive and ambition stay where they are. So we're seeing probably the most ambitious ones who have decided to relocate to another country. But I've been to Africa as well. But even people who are not educated there do not automatically think of themselves as inferior to white people. That just is not something that ever crosses their minds. They may feel themselves as not being on the same level as somebody who has an education or some other uh, accomplishment, but they don't. Skin color is not the issue. And they haven't had generations of oppression and indoctrination telling them that they are not worthy, that they are inferior. That takes a toll, continues to today, because we take all of our measurements by race, and we always say whites have twice as much money as blacks, whites have twice as much education as blacks. And so that reinforces this feeling that you already have, that you're not up to snuff. And we keep doing it, and we keep doing it. And I think it's by design. And unfortunately, black people have picked up the mantle or the baton 
and we do it to ourselves as well. All of these civil rights organizations, I don't know if they still do it because I don't pay attention anymore, but they usually do a state of black America thing at the end of every year, the beginning of every year, and they repeat these statistics about how inferior we are to whites. And I don't think that's helpful at all. And when you swim in waters with these beliefs, it's so easy to not know that that's the water that's around you. I did a research project when I was in college, and it was about, I think it was the Civil Rights Act of 1956. It didn't pass, by the way, but it was the whole dynamics leading up to it. And one thing they started at the observation then was the tremendous changes going on. There were plenty of people in the U.S. who thought that blacks were getting a, a raw deal, that Negroes or whatever color was used, colored, you know, all of the different names, that they were getting a raw deal and would fight for them and protect them and such. But their observation was that up until maybe the 1930s, 40s, that even those people who were struggling on the part of, and maybe this actually included a lot of black people, believed that blacks were inferior in some ways, maybe intellectually, to whites. And that was internalized, it was externalized, it was the common myth that everyone was sharing. And these weren't people who wished ill on anyone, but I know. it's the water you're drinking and it's, it's reflected in your beliefs. When did you overcome that? When I got to know white people individually, when I married my white husband, that was the beginning. When I stepped across that invisible chasm between blacks and whites and got to know whites and heard their stories and found out, it's not in my collection of essays, but in my memoir, I talk about when I was in my last year of college living in a rooming house with people from other countries and white people. And so we all talked to each other from time to time. And I remember meeting this white woman who told me that her life had probably been poorer than mine. And when she described to me what her life had been like and that she was also the first person in her family to go to college, that was the first time that I really absorbed the idea that poor white people's lives were in fact worse than mine had been. The beliefs that one carries with one out of the background and the assumption of second-classism, it's not only blacks. I mean, women have carried that with them. Hispanics yeah. do. I mean, every, everyone. Actually, men have internalized limitations. Men don't believe that men can dance for the most part. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Or that sensitivity or that those feelings, I can't do those. It, we all have our limitations that we carry with us. And when we see them, it frees us, and of course that's part of what you bring us to by sharing in not all poor people are black and other things we need to think more about. There's so much in here that we need to think about. Let's talk about the last essay, which is what the title of the book is about, Not All Poor People Are Black. And of course, not all black people are poor and all that kind of thing. You have something shared in there that came out as a spiritual message for me in Quaker meeting this past Sunday. It had moved me to think about it in my own life. You talk about attitudes towards the Holocaust or the attack on the Twin Towers versus attitudes towards slavery. It, it seems to me a really powerful insight. You want to say for folks what that insight was for you? I had always thought 
that people who thought the Holocaust was worse than slavery were just irredeemable racists. But when I heard this lecture on the causes and consequences of the evil label, I had a really profound internal shift. Because of what the man said in the lecture, I recognized that it was, I really literally felt myself being put into the shoes of a person who was deeply hurt by the Holocaust and who, in fact, thought it was evil because they intended to wipe Jews from the face of the earth. And I could see how that would be viewed differently than slavery was just meant to use the labor and keep people captive. They weren't trying to wipe people from the face of the earth. So I could see how somebody could look at that from that perspective. Prior to that, I saw everything strictly through the lens of if you don't see my tragedy as being as significant as yours, you must be a racist. So that helped me to turn my thinking. It helped me to see things literally from another perspective, and I had never done that before. It also had some impact in my personal life as well with some people in my personal life with whom I had some long-standing, uh, let's say, uh, hostilities. It helped me to see me from their perspective, and I'm not even sure how that happened, but it did happen. In getting inside the other person's shoes and seeing it, and seeing how we whitewash our own situation, how we pretend that we're not doing evil because we don't want to feel like we're bad people and we want to look good and so on. And some amazing insights in the book, Not All Poor People Are Black. That's not your only book, of course. You've got your memoir, Victories of the Spirit, Reflections of My Journey, and there's many other books by Janet Cheatham Bell. You can purchase a copy of Not All Poor People Are Black on Janet Cheatham Bell's website. Again, there's a link on NordenSpiritRadio.org. Please do buy the book and go right to the source. Janet's a great source for many good writings. Janet, it's a great collection you've got here, great insights, great personal experience. I, I really feel close to you having read your essays. Thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.